Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Zach Sims. I'm a senior here at Melanie Park and a senior at Friendship High School. And graduation is on Thursday, and I'm ready. <laughs> so today, uh, Todd and Bruce asked me to share kind of a senior testimony. And so I'm going to share with you like Paul does in Acts 8, verse 27, when he says, They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So today, this morning... I'm going to share about how God has worked in my life. So from a very early age, I've always been a very logical kid. I used facts to back up my opinions on just about everything. And so that, was, for me, was the best way to find truth. And um, consequently, my faith was tested early on in elementary and middle school and even into high school because you're taught that uh, things such as evolution were fact in the school textbooks. And I could not justify the Bible with the textbooks. It had to be one or the other for me. And I was thinking, well, I'm a Christian, so I believe in the Bible. But why is science telling me that evolution is correct? And so it was just very hard to wrestle with that. But thankfully, I think, I think at the back end of middle school, creationism was introduced to me through Creation Magazine. And through this magazine, I was able to more fully grasp the truth that exceptional creatures in nature and incredible natural formations point to God as the creator rather than evolution. And so for you today, I have an example like the mimic octopus. <laughs> and so this creature has the capability to mimic the shape, color, and behavior of up to a recorded 15 different animals. And so I made a slideshow for y'all because I'm a nerd out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the octopus in its like normal form, right? So this is... Just very small, unassuming creature. And this is a, I think, poisonous flatfish or flounder. I don't know what it is, but it lives in like the sandy regions of Indonesia. Well, this is the mimic octopus mimicking that fish. It's pretty cool, right? This is a jellyfish, right? Very poisonous, very deadly creature. This is the mimic octopus mimicking the jellyfish. Pretty cool. And I know to our trained eye, we can see it, and it's a lot easier. But for animals in this habitat, that's crazy. They're like, oh, I'm not I'm getting away from that, right? And this is the mimic octopus. Sorry, I went out of order here. But this is the mimic octopus mimicking the poisonous sea snake. It, so it would crawl into a hole and put six of its tentacles in the hole and keep two out to look like a fish it, or to look like a sea snake. And this is a stingray. This is going to blow y'all's mind. You ready? This is the mimic octopus mimicking a stingray. Okay, and one more for y'all. This is the poisonous lionfish. And this is the mimic octopus mimicking the lionfish. And so I'm going to read this quote from the Creation Magazine for you, and it's going to blow y'all's minds. This is so cool. And think about this. The mimic must have an incredibly accurate sensor array constantly feeding data into a monitoring system capable of detecting and reacting to different predators. It must also have a database of the different predators so it can know how to react appropriately when it sees each one. This database somehow needs to take into account things like offensive and defensive capabilities of each predator as well as which animal is its natural enemy, so that imitating it has the most likelihood of being a successful deterrent. And then the mimic must be able to consider unseen predators within any environment. For example, if I, try, if I travel into an open area without much cover, I could be attacked by X, Y, and Z, 
so I should disguise myself as A, B, or C. Once all of these decision-making processes have resulted in a particular creature of choice to mimic, it must access another database of information that contains separate, incredibly detailed files for all the different creatures it can mimic, including the other creature's behavior, texture, posture, coloration, speed, or motion. That's incredible, right? And you saw, I think, this last one. This mimic octopus is a very unassuming, very shy creature normally. But when it travels into an open area to mimic the blind fish, it swims above the water, completely vulnerable, completely confident within its ability to mimic the lionfish, which is just incredible. And this just shows you that this extraordinary creature could not have arisen from chance. It had to be designed, which just points to me to God. A second thing that has shaped and grown my relationship with God is my church community, obviously. The solid group of friends I got out of high school did not come from friendship. They came from this church. This group of like-minded individuals are my favorite people to spend time with because we can be free to be who we are in Christ. Trips to Zion National Park, Glorieta, New Mexico, and Quest Ranch are among my favorite memories because I was, able, I was able to spend time with my best friends. And then this past year happened. Everyone knows senior year is difficult. Side note, if you're told that you only have to write three essays for college applications and scholarships, that's wrong. That's <laughs> wrong. Just, just putting that out there. On a serious note, my senior year was often filled with disappointment. Despite my accomplishments in high school, scholarships were very hard to come by, and rejection letters were hard knowing I was just as qualified as the winner or winners. Even in sports, basketball season was spent on the bench even after four years of hard work in high school. In terms of college, there were two specific examples where I thought God was leading me one way until he shut the door. It was, being hard, it was hard being cut off in the middle of a path. One by one, every accomplishment, every gift I had failed me. But God was faithful through it all. Psalms 100 verse 5 states, For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. If there's one thing that this past year has taught me, is that it's my own skills and abilities will never come close to the blessings of the Lord. This year has pushed me to rely more on the Lord and his community more than anything else. Uh, this fall, I'll be attending Texas Tech University, so wreck them, right? <laughs> it wasn't my first choice, being honest, but I'm excited nonetheless to, one, get out of high school, and two, because I know college is what I put into it. My goal is to remain, ultimately, in the truths of community and Christ, to fully impact the world with eternity in mind. I'm passionate about the truth, and that's truth with a capital T. And I want to be a light to others who need that truth, too. And ultimately, I want, my, I want to stand before God one day while he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. So, thank you. So, uh, thank you. Uh, for the time of worship. Thank you, Zach, for the great testimony. Thank you, church, for being a part of that testimony. That's your story. That's raising up the next generation of Christian disciples. That's what we have said over and over again. We want to be faithful in as a body of Christ. So we are going to continue in our study of Acts this morning, but I want you to know that even though we kind of finish up the details of this last missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas, 
I hope that what you see are some real God-ordained connections to everything that we will walk through together this morning, including what has already been done. Some of the things that you heard Zach speak to in his testimony will be reflected in our passage this morning, and that's all a work of God. And so I'm looking forward to to walking through the passage together. So in order to do that, I want to kind of retrace the steps of where we have been so far. So let's kind of go back to the beginning where it all started in this multicultural church that existed in a city called uh, Antioch. As we learned, it was a a growing congregation of, of believers who were prayerfully considering how they might impact the world for Christ. And that we learn through their prayers, in fact, while they were praying, it says that God set apart two men, Paul and Barnabas, to go on the first missionary journey. And we know that they brought along John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, to be their helper in ministry. As we learn, they went first to the island of Cyprus. This was familiar territory because this is where Barnabas was born and raised. So he knew some people and some ways to begin the spread of the gospel on Cyprus. After they finished ministering on Cyprus from east to west, they then traveled north to Asia Minor. It's at this point in the journey where we learn that Mark decided that he would prefer to return home to Jerusalem. We talked about how we have no fault given to Mark because we learn that making disciples is not an easy path. This was a whole new world of experiences, and he'd never been out of Jerusalem, much less across the then-known world. So he returned home to to be with family, and Paul and Barnabas continued on in their journey. While they were in Perga, we learn that this is most likely the place where Paul gets pretty sick. We don't know exactly what it is, but many scholars suggest that it was probably malaria, which was a common illness in the coastal region of Perga. It's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul speaks of this, and he says to the Galatians when he writes his letter, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. One of the things that I ran across this week that kind of added to my understanding, it's amazing to me, Zach, like what you talked about, how we continue to see the evidence of God's hand at work through every generation. So I was reading uh, Bible Study Magazine this week, and they had an article on archaeological finds outside of Israel, which is where we often think of biblical finds, that do impact the Bible. And one of the things that they found, which is fascinating to our study, is a monument in Antioch, Pisidia. Remember, they went from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia. In Antioch, Pisidia, there is a monument to the man named Sergio Paulus. Do you remember him? He was the government official in Cyprus who came to know the Lord through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Remember him? And Sergio Paulus apparently was originally from Pisidian Antioch. So very possibly one of the reasons that he went to Pisidian Antioch was to carry the message of the gospel that Sergio Paulus believed back to his family and the community where he was raised. We continue to see things happening in our world today that validate the truths of Scripture. And you're right. It is amazing. 
initially in Pisidia, what we learned was Paul and Barnabas were well received. They went to the synagogue and the Jews loved what they had to say but wanted to hear more. And so they were looking forward to when they came back the next Sabbath to teach. But, but we learned that by that time, the, the news of Paul and Barnabas had spread throughout the city of Pisidia, so much so that it says the whole town, the whole city. It was a major city. They all showed up to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. You see, we learned that when the whole city showed up to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say, the Jews in the synagogue became jealous. They became jealous because they believed the truth being shared was only intended for them. And so when everyone else showed up, they were not interested anymore. In fact, that jealousy turned to persecution. Paul and Barnabas eventually were literally run out of town. But as we've been talking about all throughout this missionary journey, everywhere they go, they take the message of the gospel with them. Persecution is one of the main reasons the gospel spread throughout the world. Because as they were pushed out of one city, they just went to the next one to tell them the exact same story. They went from Pisidia to Iconium. And once again, they were initially well received. We've seen that despite the difficulty that they eventually face in all these cities, before that comes, there are many people Men and women, Jew and Gentile, who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But the persecution, as we follow their path, does seem to be increasing in intensity. It began with jealousy. And then it progressed to persecution. They were run out of town. And then it advanced to the threat of murder. Because in Iconium, the city who had gathered to hear them speak picked up stones and threatened to kill them if they did not choose to leave. So Paul and Barnabas left to the next town, and guess what? They took the message of the gospel with them. They went to the next town, and as we'll see this morning, they traveled to Lystra, and then eventually into a city named Derby. Then they will reverse course. And go back to all those cities that they had previously visited. Which is an amazing fact in and of itself. Because if you think about all that they've encountered along the way. It almost seems crazy to go back to the places where people literally wanted to kill you. In total, Paul and Barnabas will have traveled about 1,200 miles. Not in a car. Not on a horse. But one step at a time. It was a journey that probably took them at least two years to complete. But once again, wherever they went, wherever the Lord led, they took the message of the gospel with them. Regardless of their audience, whether in a synagogue or not, they shared the exact same story of faith. Their goal was to impact the world for Christ, which is the connection to everything that we've been talking about this morning and will continue to talk about as we move forward. Seniors, after you graduate, you will go into new places. You will meet new people. But everywhere you go, you take the message of the gospel with you. 
of those who are being baptized. You're going to stand up and tell your church family what you believe about Christ. You're going to make a profession of faith. But listen to me, you're going to make that same profession of faith over and over again in your lifetime. You see, our goal in life for all of us as as followers of Jesus Christ is to ultimately make an impact in the world for Christ. But here's the difficulty that every person, every man and woman, every boy and girl will ultimately face. There is an evil influence in the world that wants to make an impact on you. Just as you are going out to make an impact in the world for Christ, rest assured there is an evil influence in the world who wants to make an impact on you. So the question is, will you shape the world or will the world shape you? Will you try to fit the wisdom in the world into your faith? Or will you fill the world with your faith? I think that challenge, that calling, that mission applies to every single person in this room. And so our passage is going to speak to us this morning. And so I look forward to walking through that with you. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that is timeless. That generation after generation, it speaks to our heart. It speaks to our culture. It speaks to the societies in which we live. And that same truth resounds in amazing and in powerful ways. It echoes from generation to generation around the world as it points to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. So, Father, as we look at our passage and we consider the lives of Paul and Barnabas in this missionary journey that they went on, may we not separate ourselves from this story and may we realize that we, too, have been sent out as missionaries into this world in which we live. That we, too, will face difficulties and and struggles and and, and temptations and and trials where the world will want to influence us and, and, and and challenge us to, to compromise our beliefs, to make what the world says is true fit into what we believe. But Lord, help us to live in such a way that we don't change anything that you've already said is true. That we live faithfully in a world filled with compromise. That we do, in fact, make an impact in the world for Christ. That we shape the world and we don't let the world shape us. But Lord, we cannot do that unless we rely on the power of your Spirit at work in us and through us for the praise and glory of your name. So lead us to understand more clearly what that looks like through our passage this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 14. And let's begin reading in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. When he had fixed his gaze upon him, he had seen, Paul had seen that he had faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. 
Now, as we've looked through this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, there is a very consistent pattern of ministry that they duplicate every place they go. But this morning, we see something a little different, don't we? Each time they go into a new town, they make a commitment to share the good news of the gospel of faith through Christ alone. And as we've seen, they always begin where? In synagogue. To the Jew first and to the Gentile. But here, there is no mention of synagogue. And I believe it's very likely because there's probably not one in Lystra. Lystra was a town that was known for its pagan worship. It was full of worship for the gods and goddesses. They kind of lived within the Greek mythology of that day. You may have noticed when you looked at the maps that every one of the towns that Paul and Barnabas visited were literally on the main road. Lystra is Literally off the beaten path. It is off the main road. It is kind of set apart. It is more of a a rule, more of an uncivilized area. In fact, these people spoke with their own language. They were kind of native to that area. They lived based on legend and myth. We see here that Paul is preaching to the people. And in that audience of people that he is preaching to is a man who is specifically described as having been lame from birth. Now, that's really important when you see that in Scripture because what that is telling us is that this man was born with a disability from from his mother's womb. And in that culture, the general belief was is if you were born with a disability, then you had upon you a curse from God. Now, that is absolutely not true, but it was the mythology of the day. And so the reason that's important is because if anyone has the power to heal someone who was born with a disability, that means they had the power to reverse a divine curse, which is why there was so much attention to this miracle from Paul. It says that he was preaching, and when he did, he looked out into his large audience, probably bigger than the number of people that are even here this morning, and he happens to notice one in particular who is paying extra close attention. He's very interested in what he has to say. So much so that Paul knew that just by the look in his eye, he longed to believe. He was hungry for truth. I want you to know on any given morning, I can appreciate what Paul is saying here because I look out into your faces and I can see through your eyes and through your connection with me as we're walking through the Scripture together, I can tell very easily who is hungry for truth who is connecting with the message. And I can also see plenty of people who are very distracted, some of whom are even sleeping most Sundays during church. I see it all. But in this particular event, Paul looked at that massive audience, and there was one man, a man born lame, that caught his attention. It says that he turned to that man and said very clearly, get up. Get up and stand on your feet. The reason I believe that he believed that that look that Paul saw in his eyes was genuine and sincere faith is because when Paul told him to get up and walk, he didn't explain to him why he couldn't. Because he had been lame his whole life. What did he do? The scripture says he leapt to his feet. He expected to be healed. He believed in the power of God. And for the very first time, this man born lame walked on his own two feet because he heard and connected 
to a message of truth that he longed to hear and believe. As a result of the miracle, something very interesting takes place. Look at verse 11. It says, and when the multitude saw what Paul had done, speaking of the miracle, they raised their voice saying in a Lyconian language, there it is, their own dialect, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowds. See, instead of listening to the message that Paul was preaching, the people were enamored by the miracle he performed. They simply made the message fit into a legend that they already believed to be true. And it's important to understand that there is actually a story behind this story. And when you know the story behind the story, it helps make this whole account make sense. It's amazing. Zach, here's another example of something that actually happened in history that validates the truth of Scripture, and it will make it come alive for you. Because during this time, there was a prolific writer by the name of Ovid, O-V-I-D. You can look it up online. He's a real person. His real writings are there. And he was known for his mythology. He liked to create stories about the gods and goddesses. And one of the stories he created happens to apply the people to, to the people that live in this area, to Lystra. It's a story about a day when, get this, Zeus and Hermes. Coincidence? No. Zeus and Hermes come in as disguised as mere mortals. They're disguised as mere mortals. They walk into this area of Lystra and they go house to house looking for a place to stay and for food to eat. But each time they went to a house... They were rejected, and so they would go to the next house, and they were rejected. So finally, they came to an old person's house, an old couple. It's a meager home, very poor, and those people invited them in. Not only did they invite them in, they treated them like royalty. They gave them food to eat, gave them a place to stay, and as a result, Zeus and Hermes, according to the legend, made that meager home into a majestic temple. And he made the, the husband and wife into the priest and priestess of this temple to Zeus, which is located in Lystra. And guess what he did to the rest of the town who wouldn't let them in? Destroyed them. Destroyed the whole town, according to this legend, except for this older couple, poor and meager, who were made priest and pri priestess in a majestic temple Zeus. Now, think about this. Knowing that true story that existed during that, true, it's a myth, but actually a story that these people would have known. If that's the story that they believed to be true, and Paul and Barnabas walk in and perform that miracle, now do you understand why they said, oh my goodness, you're Zeus, you're Hermes, just like the legend said. And so why do they want to worship them? So that they don't get destroyed like they did in that story. See, they were not interested in finding salvation through faith in Christ alone. They were making the message fit into their own story of salvation. They were trying to avoid destruction, <laughs> just like the legend said. 
It's at, this, at this point, when they're talking about all this stuff that's going on, Paul and Barnabas have no idea because as we saw in verse 11, they're speaking in a Lyconian language, a unique dialect, and nobody else knows what they're saying except the people from that town. But they begin to figure it out <laughs> when the priest of the temple of Zeus shows up with garland and animals to make a sacrifice to who they believe to be a god in Zeus and Hermes, believe Paul and Barnabas represent those mythic gods. So look at what happens in verse 14. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying and saying, Men, why are you doing this? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things, these myths, these idols, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness. He did, not, he did good and, and gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. As you can see, Paul and Barnabas want to have nothing to do with their worship. Which, again, is no small thing because it probably was at least a little tempting, and I only say this because it might be for me, to receive all of that praise and worship and think, this feels pretty good. And even maybe to legitimize it and say, I'll tell you what, I'll use my new position of praise and authority to then influence them for Christ. <laughs> no, you won't. No, you won't. Because Paul and Barnabas understand the biblical principle that says for Jesus to be more we have to be less and anytime we become more he becomes less that's why John the Baptist said he must increase but I must decrease the two have to go together for Jesus to be magnified I cannot be glorified I must decrease so that he might Increase. So Paul tries as best as he can to turn their attention to the majesty and glory of God. And much like Zach did in his testimony, he points to nature. He points to the God who is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and, and all that is in them. He points to God as the one who brings rains for their crops, who brings produce from their field. And Paul is saying, we have no power to do any of that. Only God does. And in fact, he was doing it long before we ever showed up. And you have a witness through what God has done to his sovereign control in the world. But as we see in verse 18, they couldn't see beyond their own definition of faith. They wanted to make the message fit into their story of salvation. So much so that look what happens in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, which, by the way, is about 100 miles away. Having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead, which means to me he was likely unconscious. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. What a sudden turn of events, right? The people who were ready to crown these men as gods among them 
are now trying to kill the ones they were worshiping. But I want you to know that's how people respond when they receive a message that does not match what they want it to be. That's how people respond when they receive a message that does not match what they want it to be. They demonize those they disagree with. It happened in the time of Paul and Barnabas, and it continues to happen today. I want you to just think about the example of Jesus and the triumphal entry. You remember that? So when Jesus walks in on the triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, they are literally laying down palm branches, ready to anoint him as king. You remember what they said? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one that the Scripture spoke of. We believe in him. Or do they? Because Jesus didn't meet the expectations of what they thought the Savior would be. One who would come to rule and have authority over all the peoples and put them under his feet so that they could be raised up to places of authority along with him. And that's not happening. And so in less than a week of them welcoming him into town as the next king, they were crying for him to be crucified as a criminal. The very same people, just as suddenly as we see in our passage, when the message didn't match what they wanted it to be, they turned from worship to murder. And here we see in Lystra them taking up stones and Stoning Paul unconscious at the very least, believing him to be dead, dragging him outside of the city. I think just as miraculous as the man who was born lame was the fact that Paul could get up the next day and go to the next town and continue the work of ministry. He talks about in uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, if you want to look that one up, he talks about having wore the, the brand, the brand marks of, of ministry, having gone to the Galatians. Because he's writing to them and he says, you remember what happened when I was in Lystra. And I believe what he's talking about when he mentions these brand marks likely refer back to this day when you know he still carried the scars of having been stoned supposedly to death and then dragged outside of this city. But in the midst of all this difficulty, here's a beautiful story. One of the men who came to faith during the ministry of Lystra is somebody that you know from Scripture. It's Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. And it's very likely that Timothy, perhaps even his mom and grandmother, all came to faith through the ministry of Paul despite the, the terrible ordeal that they had to go through. But I believe and I really believe in my heart that this was one of the sincere motivations of Paul and Barnabas to continue in a work of ministry when they saw the effect of the gospel raising up a new generation of Christian disciples. And when they saw that those things were happening in the lives of the people they were ministering to, they were willing to go to the next town despite how difficult that might be. Look at how it continues in verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and also made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and then to Antioch. And here's what they're doing, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the road to discipleship is not easy. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, 
Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. And then as Zach read this morning in verse 27, it says, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. And I suspect praising and glorifying God for what he had accomplished. After traveling to Derby, they backtracked into all the cities where they had been threatened and attempted to have been killed because they believed strongly in the message of the gospel. And their goal was simple. We learn in that verse 22 that they wanted to encourage the believers. And then secondly, they wanted to establish godly leadership. It says that they appointed elders in every church, in every city along the way. This is important because remember, the the gospel, the message of salvation, the, the, the commission, the great commission, is not only to go and make disciples, but what does Jesus go on to say? And teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Paul and Barnabas, trust me, they did not go back into Antioch and sit down with the believers in Antioch and say, hey guys, we've crunched the numbers and we're really excited. We had 1,245 professions of faith. Isn't that awesome? They weren't counting conversions. They were equipping the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, for the praise and glory of God's name. Look again at verse 27. They began to report the things that they had accomplished. Is that what it said? They reported the things that God had done. This is not the result of an effective strategy. This is not a new and exciting disciple-making movement. That's not what's happening here. This is a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women who hear the message, who are hungry for the truth, and they are saved from their sins. And what happened on this first missionary journey is should be the heart of every mission effort and the heart of every believer from that day on. No different. This is what God has called us to. By the work of His Spirit. By the power of His hand through the lives of his people, not because they're amazing, but simply because they are faithful. If you mark in your Bible, I want you to put a circle around verse 22. Just circle verse 22, because when we get to Paul's letter to the Galatians, this will become really important. Because these, in a sense, are his final words to the Galatian believers as he's making his way back through the churches. And so when he writes his letter to the Galatians of concern about certain issues, if you look back on verse 22, you will see why he's concerned based on what he said last to them. But this will complete the first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas. And as you can see, it's quite a journey, isn't it? They traveled over 1,200 miles. They 
endured hardship and difficulty most every single step of the way to the point that in verse 22 when they're encouraging the other believers as they continue in this same work of ministry they say through many tribulations it won't be easy there is a cost to discipleship but the reward is the kingdom of God instead of being shaped by the world they shaped the world around them And I said earlier, and I will say it again, even in our world today, this remains an important challenge for each of us. Graduates, I need you to understand that you will not go to a college campus, whether that's a Christian campus or a non-Christian campus. It doesn't matter. Essentially, they're all the same these days. That's a fact of the matter. But you will not go to a college campus where you will not be challenged to compromise your convictions. It's a promise. It will happen. You will be introduced to views that do exactly what happened in Lystra, where they will incorporate the wisdom in the world to adapt it to your definition of faith. People will make the message fit into their own story of salvation. It happened in Lystra. It still happens today. We live in a world of customizable religion. But I want you to hear me clearly. Okay? Look at my eyes. There's only one story of salvation. There is only one name under heaven. Given unto men. By which we can be saved. Jesus is our redeemer. He alone. Is the author and perfecter. Of our faith. Which means. We should never customize the message to meet our expectations of what we want to believe. We have been called to trust God enough that we lay aside our own opinions and believe wholly and completely in Him to the point that we're not conforming the message. We, in fact, are being conformed to His image. You see the difference? I really don't care how much society has progressed. The truth of God does not change over time. And no one has the authority to change the message to better meet their expectations. Not then and not now. Instead, we trust God enough to abandon our own opinions and trust completely in His truth. And I want you to understand something very clearly as I make that statement. We are not missing out when we choose to follow Christ. Did you hear that? We are not missing out when we choose to follow Christ. There is a goodness. Trust me. I believe it. I'm convinced it's true. There is a goodness built into his design. And it is a soul-satisfying goodness with which this world cannot compete. So no matter what you hear, no matter what you see, as they say on Sports Talk, don't believe the hype. Delight yourself in the Lord. Hear me. Delight yourself in the Lord. I promise He will give you the desires of your heart. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. I promise He will make your path straight. Don't fit the world into your faith. Fill the world with your faith and no matter where you go and no matter what you do always take 
the message of the gospel with you. Amen? So we're going to celebrate baptism this morning. And as we heard with Zach's testimony, I want you to hear from these sweet young people the evidence of your influence on their lives as they have become the next generation. This is our motivation. This is why we do this every day, is to raise up the next generation who boldly proclaim their faith and then take that faith into the world in which they live. Before we do that, uh, Bruce is going to come up and pray for the graduating seniors. So if you're being baptized, please make your way to the back. I don't know what you have planned for the rest of the day, but if I were you, I would call it good. <laughs> because this has been a great morning. And I'm so grateful for this church, for your testimony of faith, for what we see being lived out in these seniors, what we hear being lived out in these young children, and what we see being uh, as a testimony of faith from men and women throughout this body. And I hope that through our passage this morning, you are encouraged to take the message of the gospel wherever you go, because like Paul and Barnabas, we too are missionaries with a mission to take the truth wherever we go and shape the world without letting the world shape us. Amen? If you would stand and let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this sweet body of believers, these men and women, these boys and girls, these people who have looked to you and trusted in you, despite what they hear and see in the world around them. I just pray that like Paul encouraged the churches that he visited, that we too may be encouraged in our walk with Christ, to stand firm even in the midst of the difficulties, knowing that the difficulties are a part of the journey of what it means to be a disciple. But may those difficulties strengthen our faith. May they deepen our joy in things that the world cannot compare with. Truths that last eternal and are stored in heaven for us. And until that day, may we live within the promises of what you've made for your people this side of heaven. Faithfully carrying out the mission that you've given us to the praise and the glory of your name. We love you, Jesus. And there is no doubt how much you love us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.